by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. Hi everyone, this is Rev Yearwood, and this, the fourth episode in a four-part special series we are doing between seasons two and three of The Coolest Show. The series is on trucking electrification and transportation justice. In this episode, we shift gears, no pun intended, and expand the discussion to mobility justice. As you'll hear in the other episodes, basically, Electrifying trucks is about the lowest hanging fruit in terms of action, transportation, and climate justice. It's a no-brainer, and we must do it. Between the Biden administration and the incredibly wealthy corporations who move their goods via trucks, the resources are there to do this, and it's going to take our people power to push corporations and the government to make it happen and to do it in a just way. But what you also heard in the other three episodes is that there is a much bigger story here, and we have a lot more to do beyond electrifying trucks. That's what has led us to mobility justice, and that's what we're going to focus on in this final discussion of this series. Let's get to it. I'm excited for this interview. I really am. And yeah, and I just I just learned something new um about about Darnell. Well, we're gonna get into it. I have with me um Darnell Grisby. And uh Darnell Grisby is the executive director of Transform, a leading policy advocacy nonprofit advancing equitable, sustainable transportation and land use solutions in California, a national thought leader in transportation policy and the mobility justice movement. Darnell also has a deep expertise in anti-racist initiatives, housing affordability, transit-oriented development, and the intersection of transportation and housing finance. He is the former director of policy development for the American Public Transportation Association, policy lead for a national smart group think tank and senior advisor in the California legislature. Darnell has been quoted or featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, National Public Radio, and Bloomberg. He has degrees from Harvard University, Kennedy School of Government, and University of California, Los Angeles, better known to all of us who love basketball as UCLA. Darnell, how are you, my brother? How's it going? Going well, and, and that UCLA might be the most important one. Uh, that's hard to <laughs> me. I can imagine. I can imagine. Well, with, with, with that impressive resume, and thank you because I really, I mean, when I read your article, and we're going to get into that, I, was, I really wanted to have you, um, uh, for us to have this dialogue and to have this conversation. Um, but um, before we get to all of the, the, I guess, all the nuts and bolts, <laughs> no pun intended, but transportation talk. Um, uh, who is Darnell Grisby? 
Well, I'm a, I'm an activist. I'm a fighter. Uh, I think I was sent to uh, analyze and understand systems and try to break them down, mm-hmm. uh, particularly those systems that are oppressive to our people. Uh, for me, uh, it has been transportation and housing because that's been uh, my direct personal lived experience uh, growing up in Southern California. Uh, so uh, that's what I was. I think I was sent here to do, uh, and uh, that's who I am. No, that's phenomenal. So I have to ask you, before you get into anything, I guess being from Southern LA, that you have a strong connection with the, the hip-hop down there. And, 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 and I see you're nodding your head, all those who are listening, and smiling. <laughs> I love hip-hop, yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that, that's, 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 that's a great. And then we, on, on some other conversations, we talked about how the creation Many folks don't know. Hip hop was literally created because of transportation justice. And it was literally, yes, it was literally created because when uh, Robert Moses was creating the Bronx Causeway, which went through and the highway development uh, at that time, um, literally that split the Bronx, which then caused redlining and many other problems. And then that actually, which then creates those young folks to begin to speak out using hip hop, and there you go. So a little 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 fact before you down there. This is a little, <laughs> little something here on the coolest. There's something to give you a little something. <laughs> you know that now you connect. Now you can go to work on Monday. Be like let me tell y'all something. Hip hop. I'll be part of the creation of this. I, I have forgotten that story uh, about the, you know, the havoc that Robert Moses wrecked on New yeah. York, uh, mm-hmm. and how racist he actually was, and. You know, that, that freeway that you're referring to, I think he uh, actually purposely routed it where he would destroy communities on purpose. Exactly. Uh, and, um, you know, it, it's, it's another symbol of how government, which is meant to, to really secure all of our freedom, uh, can actually fight against the very people it's meant to protect. Exactly. Uh, and, um, you know, the Robert Moses story, there's a great... Uh, uh, PBS documentary on New York. It's, I think it's like five or six volumes mm-hmm. and they have a whole volume on Robert Moses and what he did. Uh, and uh, he pretty much almost wrecked New York city uh, and wanted to put a freeway right through the village. Mm-hmm. Uh, wanted to put one right through Harlem as well. And fortunately he was blocked on those, but he did ram a couple through the Bronx and uh, uh, that was unfortunate. No, it was, it was more than uh, unfortunate. It, it literally caused havoc. It caused destruction. In some cases, um, probably even caused some lives um, because of the, of the despair of what was caused. Um, um, but so when we get into that, let's actually, let's, let's, let's lead into a great segment. What is transportation justice and mobility justice? It is the, the understanding that mobility is a human right and that everyone has the, the right to be able to move around in their community, have access to opportunity, uh, and really be able to be a true citizen in that community. It also means that when we talk about where transportation is cited and how it's cited, that we actually take into account the deleterious impacts that it could have on communities and make sure that the benefits and the, the negatives are, are properly balanced for each community. And that uh, 
communities do not bear all of the negativity from the transportation projects without getting any of the benefit, uh, which has been historically the case in many, many cities. And that's, 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 a, that's, that's interesting because, you know, in my world, in the climate environmental justice world, um, we are now beginning to really see how mobility and transportation justice really intersects with our work. What are your thoughts on that, about how transportation justice specifically intersects with, inter with environmental justice? I think they're, they're um, uh, in the same neighborhood and they're pretty much the same thing in my mind. Uh, you know, uh, transportation justice is part of environmental justice. Uh, it's, it's a subsection of it. Uh, I just happen to drill down on transportation, but to me, I see all the linkages to the rest of it. Whether it be the siting of factories, uh, you know, carbon emitting uh, locations and communities of color uh, that they're damaging our health, ruining our environment uh, while damaging the planet, uh, it's all connected. You know, transportation has been uh, one of the, the sticking points for California, for example. We've done some pretty good work in terms of uh, attacking uh, stationary sources of pollution, and there's still more work to be done there. But when you look at the, uh, the mobility sec sector, transportation, uh, huge carbon uh, emitter, uh, many of those freeways are actually right through communities of color. Uh, and... Um, you know, is they're also politically protected. Uh, so it's hard to really fight against the highway machine because they have money and power and political support from the people who automatically understand, or at least in their own mind, they come to the understanding that um, they need to have highways to move around, which is not true. You know, it's interesting. We've had a number of amazing transportation justice um, advocates and activists like yourself, um, you know, here you know, on the coolest show. And, you know, I've learned so much because what you just said there was an important fact because a lot of them who grew up in these communities actually didn't know, one, it didn't need to be that way. And so as they are kind of coming out of that shell and kind of realizing that this is also, this was by design, like this is not just happening. We just, this didn't come this way. These highways just didn't plot themselves down here um, in some cases, they actually will move there. They they will move there in cases where it was out of the way. Like it, it was, it didn't make sense to to put them through these communities, and that was by design. And then the amount of amount of amount of vehicles that are coming through, I was just I've just been blown away how they. I, I never knew about truck counting, right? I never understood what that was. I was folks down in who were down in Long Beach off of a number of those ports and they were like, they're literally counting 50,000 trucks a day. And I'm like, are you sure? And then literally 50,000 um, vehicles a day. And so, you know, when I, after hearing what you just said and what others are saying, it's clear that transportation justice and mobility justice is a civil rights issue. Um, it's very, that's clear. Uh, we have a right to clean air, we have a right to clean water. We have a right to live in a community where, where, where it's not affecting our life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And so, you know, Dr. King, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., um, called urban interpretation a civil rights issue. And you wrote an amazing, and I hope everybody will please check it out. It was a, a Bloomberg article this past summer um, titled, To Fight Racism, Transit Has a Key Role. 
So I guess for those we get a little this little cliff notes <laughs> before they actually read the article as well. How has the U.S. failed to address implications of the racial interpretation investment uh, system and its policies? And how must city leaders and transit agencies reprioritize the infrastructure investments that are needed to correct that? So one of the ones that really annoys me is this suburban orientation of a lot of transit organizations. And that's because of the boards of director. Uh, so uh, like a lot of agencies, they might have a board of directors, which includes suburban members, and oftentimes they will be the majority on, on the council. Uh, what that means is a substantial amount of that uh, capital funding and operations funding even that uh, they have needs to be distributed to those suburban districts because that's how politics works. Uh, it goes to uh, those with the most power. So the fact that you have these powerful suburbanites on all these boards around the country means that it skews what should be an urban uh, investment to secure mobility justice into a political operation for suburbanites that a lot of them don't even use. Uh, so if you look at the 1960s, for example, there was a whole series of rail projects around the country that were built. Uh, BART in San Francisco, uh, the Metro system in Washington, DC, Miami came online and so did uh, Atlanta all in the 1960s and 70s. They're essentially sister systems in that they all have similar technologies and they all are doing the same thing, which is ferrying people from the suburbs into the core of the city, into mm. the downtown area. So if you're someone who lives in, in the core of the city, you might find yourself dependent on buses, both because they're cheaper and because those rail projects are not actually serving you, they're serving suburbanites, getting them to their jobs downtown. Uh, so uh, that is how America has done its transportation planning. Uh, and it's a, it's a hard fight to correct that because now we're a nation that has a lot fewer resources, or at least we're choosing to invest our resources elsewhere and not in our infrastructure. We fail continually to do a, a robust infrastructure package that is inclusive, which means that we have a hard time finding the capital to correct those past mistakes. Uh, mm. and that's one of the core issues that we hope that the new administration is going to be able to tackle, which is to provide a robust infrastructure program that is inclusive and is racially just to make sure that we can address some of these past uh, distribution uh, issues. Uh, the other is uh, the placement of highways, which we've already discussed. Uh, some communities will love to tear down their highways because in actuality, they're not important to the mobility network in some places. Yet they are separating communities from one another and are a source of pollution. And in places like San Francisco, where we had an uh, earthquake back in 1989, I guess it was, uh, some of those freeways that collapsed were not replaced. Uh, and instead, what you have is a great waterfront that is finally accessible to people because there's not a freeway along the waterfront. Uh, and you've also turned some of those former freeways into these great boulevards, which are walkable, that have bike lanes and have great places for people to hang out and be in public. Uh, and that is much better than having a freeway. So another, another key effort would be to include some funds in the next infrastructure package to allow communities to tear down those freeways if they, should, if they choose. Hmm. So, you know, Darnell, as you're talking, it just kind of just, it, not, I mean, not is it, is it just 
this saddens me because it saddens me from the standpoint of when you really look at the history of these communities, you look at from post, you know, the assassination of Dr. King, and you're dealing, you're dealing with, in essence, white flight, right? And that, and then so you're dealing with that, and then you're leaving these communities behind to to suffer, and you deal with redlining and housing and education and all the things that are due to lead them in despair. On top of that, then, you then are creating systems, highway systems, to literally bypass these communities so that even if they even had a chance <laughs> to, to make it. Um, and this is generations. I mean, this is not, this is not like, this is not like 10 years, this is or 20, this is, this is like 50, 60 years of literally, then you're bypassing these communities then you fast forward to now how the urban centers are now coming back. And then you're, you're, you're creating a situation where now you're, you're causing those folks who had to deal with that in those communities to be moved out. Um, man, that's tough. Yeah. And it, it, it's something that does not have to happen. Like even the displacement that we're seeing today did not have to happen because really what it is is a function of the market. If there's more demand, you should be building more. So that means that we have to fight against nimbyism, which is this whole idea of not in my backyard. A lot of people do not want housing built in their community because they don't want to have new people there, uh, which means the most uh, 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 successful or at least uh, attractive communities are not building the housing that they need to have, which means that demand gets put into neighboring communities. And, and those communities that are poorer have to bear the brunt of that, which means we have wealthier people moving in and driving up prices, which in actuality, a lot of them would have preferred to live in the other community. Uh, so in actuality, what you're having is uh, people across the income scale being negatively impacted by bad politics and bad policy. Mm. Um, and, um, and then living near public transportation is very successful and from a market point of view for uh, developers. So if there's not enough uh, high quality transit stops, those stops that do exist are gonna have extraordinarily high housing costs. So we need to build more transit and more housing and more places to make sure that that market dislocation is not gonna negatively impact our communities. Mm. In your article, you describe cars as not only polluters, but social barriers. Um, that was, that's amazing right there. And I need you to, to explain what you mean by that. It, it dawned on me one day because there was this sound that I was continually hearing as I was walking the streets of my hometown and I would hear this clicking noise. Hmm. Uh, and this is back in the 1990s in Southern California. And uh, it was a very racially uh, tense time. Mm -hmm. Lots of really good hip hop, though. Uh, back to what we talked about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, it, it dawned on me that the clicking sound were, were actually people locking their car doors uh, as I was walking by. And I was thinking to myself, like, I'm not even thinking about you, <laughs> but I'm on, I'm on your mind, uh, which uh, is interesting to me. Uh, so it struck me that it's a social barrier and also the fact that in robust communities where you have walkable, uh, when you have walkable communities, people have a better chance to interact in a unplanned way. 
So maybe you run into a friend of yours as you walk down the sidewalk. Maybe you meet someone new that you would not have thought that you would otherwise. That doesn't happen when people, when everyone is driving a car and nobody is walking. Uh, so we are separating ourselves by with these these steel and glass contraptions from one another. Uh, it is not really the way we are meant to be as social beings, uh, to be separated in that way. Uh, transit, on the other hand, brings communities together. And I do believe that when people have exposure to one another, some of the racial tension goes down just a little bit because those people that you thought were scary ain't too scary when you see them every day uh, and you have to interact with them every day. So our built community, whether it's transit versus highways, whether it's sprawl versus more urban development that allows for better walking, uh, all this impacts our ability to actually be together as Americans and as people. Uh, and it, it's, it strays at our society, it pulls it apart. Uh, and uh, it's something that we need to address through our investments. Hmm. You know, one of the things we've been trying to do is literally show people that climate justice is racial justice and racial justice is climate justice. And the same thing there for transportation justice as well. Clearly those are linked to the issue of racial justice and what you just described is important. And I just want to make sure a lot of, you know, obviously this is a, a show that focuses on the issue of climate and the environment. So we have a lot of folks who are probably wondering, what is they talking about clicking sound? And, and so I want to make sure they understand that what he's saying simply is that while he's walking down the street, when he's walking down the street, folk was, folk was locking their doors. <laughs> and he would hear the, he would hear that clicking sound. <laughs> and uh, whatever that sound was, he would hear that literally as he's walking. He would he was the reminder to other folks to lock their doors. And so that was <laughs> <laughs> and it is, it's funny because this is such a, you know, I don't know if anyone ever watched uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. It's a great show. It's been on forever. Uh, but there's an episode where um, uh, one, of the, one of the characters, he's a white guy, locks his door and in comes this black character. It's like, oh, you locking your door because the black man walking by, huh? <laughs> it's the same situation pretty much. Like sometimes seeing us reminds folks that they need to lock up their, lock up their car. Uh, just in case. No, and that's real. For folks who understand, and that's, I remember when I was teaching at Georgetown, and I would be walking, because if, if anybody who knows Georgetown in D.C., it's not, it actually isn't. There aren't that many, there isn't a subway or isn't anybody, there aren't many buses. It's just kind of, so you would just find her walking. Sometimes I would walk from what's DuPont Circle, for those, it's a subway stop in, for those listening around the country, it's a subway stop in D.C., and I would walk from there into into uh into down Georgetown. It was easier. And I would I would I would see that. I would have that effect. I, I would be like, man, here I am going to teach at Georgetown. The folks was locking it. And it was I, I was I was their reminder. I would I, I thought I was doing a good service. I mean I thought it was, <laughs> I was there I was there I was their daily reminder. Um and so that's that's real. And so and I think about that from the standpoint of those communities. I remember like in Georgetown, there was no highways cutting through Georgetown. And literally, when I was walking, which was definitely great for my health, it actually helped, you're right. It helped to, for those to, to, to connect to the community. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, I mean those who was locking their doors, unfortunate, but there was other people in the community who you would connect with. 
And I knew you grew up in South LA where there was limited interpretation and there were very much racist laws in South LA regarding limited economic opportunity. But before moving to your hometown where you are now, how did your family history and upbringing influence what you see now as far as interpretation and mobility justice? Well, it's interesting. My mom grew up in South LA uh, mm-hmm. and uh, she moved to Riverside, which is a community about 80 miles away on the edge of the urban uh, core uh, in Southern California. Uh, and um, when I was at UCLA, I had a professor who uh, told us that at the time, Los Angeles had the same segregation patterns as Johannesburg, South Africa. Wow. Uh, and it had to do with the fact that transportation is what it was and what it is still to some degree, where people in predominantly black communities have long commutes to get to their jobs and long commutes to get to anywhere where white folks actually were. Mm. Um, so, it, you know, back in the day, it would take hours. So it literally was, uh, according to his, his calculations, just as segregated as Johannesburg, South Africa, during apartheid. Uh, so, you know, learning that and then seeing that connection to how I was raised and how, what my mom went through growing up, um, cause she lived through the Watts riots and, uh, learning more about the history of how that community went well, through. Well, for our younger folks, just uh, give a little background on the Watts riots. Just a little, a little tidbit. Uh, 1965, once again, the flashpoint was a police interaction, but, uh, that's just the flashpoint. It's oftentimes the economic issues and the tension associated with the lack of jobs and, and opportunity that creates the kindling for it. Uh, and, um, you know, people in LA, black folks in LA had had their, the, the knee on their neck uh, proverbially for a long time uh, prior to that. Uh, and case in point, my mom told me that during the riots, uh, they literally didn't have any food at home. Their cupboards were empty. And, you know, part of that is because uh, of, it's hard to maintain a living in a community where you can't have real access to paying, well-paying jobs, mm-hmm. or even jobs that pay a little bit more because you're trapped there because of transportation. It just doesn't, it's just, it's just like stuffing people into an area and saying, good luck. Uh, you're not really Americans. You're not going to be, and keep in mind that California was booming during that period of time. It was, you know, it's nicknamed the Golden State for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons was back in the day, we had a booming economy. There was a lot of opportunity, but those folks just did not have access to it. Uh, And for me, I realized that the development patterns, the transportation and housing patterns contributed to that. Uh, And when you figure out as a young person what drives you and what you want to fight against in you know, uh, your own marching orders, if you will, um, I decided to attack that because I learned that it had an impact on how my mom uh, grew up uh, and it had an impact on her community. Uh, and it was something that I also experienced. And to see the data backing, backing that up in college uh, lit a fire under me. Uh, and working in politics around these issues every day is a confirmation that it's still an issue. Um, I was just on a, I just had a board meeting the other day, 
and uh, uh, it's a community board, so uh, elected officials were on it. And someone actually said, I think we're, we have too much of an emphasis on equity. And I just thought to myself, seriously, how is that possible? <laughs> you know, uh, this day and time, particularly in 2020, after all that the nation's been through and the fact that so many people had their eyes open, and here I sit in the Bay Area of California and someone who is involved politically in our region said we are focused too much on equity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it just drove me up the wall. Um, it still does. So that fire is still lit under me, uh, but it, it did start because of what my mom experienced. And I just got factual uh, backup for that every day since then. When you look at the, the, the data today, how, how does it make you feel when you, what, or pretty much when is the moment when you really know it's sinister? You know that, you know, you, you see it and feel it as a kid. You know something is wrong. You can see it's, it's there. Then you go off, you begin to study it, and then you begin to really realize that folks sat down and knew this would bring hell to people. Like when you really, when that moment hits you, it's like for me, when I look at the standpoint that there 68% of Black people who live within 30 miles of a coal-fired power plant, I'm like, wow. Damn, they put that right there. I mean, it was like they knew that that would cause asthma and emphysema and cancer. And when you realize that there's just tons of those and that, that how that compacts, it, you go from you know something is wrong to that you realize this is sinister. Like, this is evil. When, how does that, when you begin to go from living that and then going into obviously working in the field, how do you maintain that level of, you know, kind of, man, let me maintain my, not composure, because you don't, but but how do you maintain just the idea of this is something that is so evil that has gone back for literally 40 and 50, 60 years, compounded into the destruction of our communities? The way I, I process it is in a very patriotic way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I view it as sort of saving our country. Um, I think race is at the heart of the attempted coup that we just lived through, and that's what it was. Uh, it was an attempted coup American style, so it was neat and clean, but uh, the president wanted to stay in power. Uh, and his enablers were, in fact, driven a lot of times by racial animist. Uh, and uh, the nation suffers for it. And I, I, I think, in my own mind, that equity is the core of us coming back as a country, is the route to which that we can once again be uh, a guiding path for the rest of the world and do so as the, nation, as the world's first multiracial, multi-ethnic uh, democracy, a true democracy where every vote is counted, whether they like it or not. Um, so, for me, it's, it's attacking those interlocking systems of oppression that impact our communities most directly, but actually negatively impact the nation's ability to move forward economically and to project its power in the world. Uh, and a lot of people don't understand that. Uh, I think it was Jesse Jackson said that America's uh, emerging markets happen to be 
uh, the disadvantaged communities. So a lot of people talk about emerging markets, where should you invest your dollars? Uh, and America has emerging markets right at home that could provide us with so much greater opportunity as a nation if we would make the investments. Uh, so that's the way I frame it because uh, really, uh, even though transportation is, is my little niche that I'm involved in, it's all interlocking systems of oppression uh, that are holding people back from meeting their God-given potential. Uh, and that's that evil that you're referring to, that evil. Uh, and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really tearing the country apart. Uh, so I think the work that people do around this work is a patriotic act. Uh, so, you know, your show is a patriotic act. Uh, and uh, it's what the new America actually is. Uh, so that's the way I sort of think about it. No, I believe that. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I think that's that's how we need to, we, many more of us need to understand and see what we're doing as saving this country. Um, let's get to where you are now. Let's get to uh, uh, transform and uh, let's tell the people what, what that is. And then what are some of the strategies that Transformers is working on? And then how can they be replicated around the country? Absolutely. So we, we fight for mobility justice and housing justice. Those are two of our core areas. Uh, but um, and, and are, you, are you specifically in the Bay Area or in California? Is that primarily just a California focus yeah. or national as well? Um, I, I would say that we've been historically focused in the region of the Bay Area and have been involved in coalition efforts statewide. Uh, we also are carrying our message to the new administration and to the, the, the folks in D.C. as well, awesome. because uh, national policy does impact the local communities. So yeah. even if you're working locally or regionally or on the state level, you need to have an understanding of how federal policy intersects with what you're doing, and therefore you need to have a voice in it. Uh, so. Our theory of change is essentially we, we, we advocate for change, but we also will show people through pilot projects that our proposed solutions are the right ones. Uh, so, for example, one thing that we've done is establish three mobility hubs in our region, the Bay Area, uh, and these mobility hubs are at affordable housing projects uh, around the region, so affordable housing sites. Now, what we offer through the Mobility Hub is uh, car share that is electric, fully electric, uh, with the charging stations uh, uh, in those communities. Uh, we also offer, based on polling and survey of those residents, uh, what other needs they may have. So this could include things like transit passes. It could include things like a scooter share, for example. Uh, and we've been involved with making sure that those communities have alternatives to having to buy a car. Uh, because we know that a lot of these communities are having to shell out dollars for cars that they cannot afford. And a lot of them are having to get uh, subprime auto loans to afford those. That's deleterious to the planet and is deleterious to their pocketbooks. So if we can offer alternatives to those communities, where they can stay outside of the personal vehicle ecosystem and continue to use transit, continue to use biking, walking, car share that is electric, uh, and uh, scooters, uh, 
perhaps we can uh, delay or avoid them having to get a car in the first place. Uh, so uh, that's a strategy that we've been employing. The other is we work a lot. With how, has, how has COVID in, impacted that? It's, it's really impacted it because it's made it more difficult for us to have the community engagement that we would like because a lot of folks are not online. Uh, so um, that's been an ongoing issue for us. Uh, not everything works online and not everyone wants to have a conversation with someone knocking on their door to ask them about mobility issues in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> um, so there's, there's been some impact in the work, but um, and there's also been some reduced usage, I think, uh, compared to what it could otherwise be. But uh, I think uh, I think this, the we, we wrote a paper on what we found from uh, the efforts, uh, and we're hoping that we can actually have this replicated in other places. Uh, you know, we uh, we met with their transition team for the, the new administration uh, and uh, mentioned uh, this project to them. Uh, we think it's something that could be useful to ensure that uh, there's not further declines in transit ridership. And this has been one issue that uh, has impacted public transportation before the pandemic. We were starting to see a reduction in ridership because quite frankly, it wasn't meeting people's needs. Uh, and cars were quote unquote cheap because of the low gas prices and because of the subprime auto loans that were uh, proliferating before the pandemic. Uh, so it was having an impact on transit ridership and was impacting the political viability and fiscal sustainability of public transportation around the nation. So those sort of interventions are going to be very important to make sure that we don't forget uh, and make sure we properly serve low-income people, which is still the backbone for public transportation, even though uh, there was a point about two or three years ago, maybe four now, where ridership was riding high and it was right before Uber and Lyft started to have an impact on ridership, we were starting to get uh, more riders from across the income spectrum in more places. But I think the COVID crisis and uh, those, uh, those companies have had an impact on ridership. Uh, so uh, it's important for us to make sure that transit is still something that is useful for people and that transit is backed up with things like mobility hubs that offer car share for those uh, types of uh, quick trips you might need a car for so that you don't have to start thinking about buying a car. I love it. What's the, what's the plan for education in this? How, how are we going to get the communities educated? Because it seems like there's a, there's, there's a the learning curve that needs to be overcome here. And that's something we identify in, in, in our paper that we wrote too, was that uh, even the folks who were served by this were not necessarily clear on what a scooter was, for example, or how they might fully utilize a car share. How EV charging stations work. Exactly. So, um, you know, this really goes back to, you know, more funding because we like to do more work. Uh, we're a nonprofit. So, uh, you know, we would like to have this in more places, have it be even better integrated into the community uh, so that they fully are aware of the various choices they have to travel so that they don't have to get a car. Um, the car becomes default because it's something that, uh, you know, it, you don't have to think about. Meanwhile, you might have to think about how you travel if you have transit as your, your primary way of travel. 
so having things like mobility hubs that are that are uh, high profile, you see them, it might be a curiosity of, of yours, like what is that new thing over there? Uh, having more people do outreach, knock on doors, tell folks about the opportunity uh, or is gonna be the way we do it. Uh, also, I think there's an ongoing problem in that in a lot of communities, getting a car is a sign that you have made it. So there's a, a cultural element there that we have to start to work on. Uh, a car is not necessarily a symbol of success. Facts. Say that. Say that again, daughter. We gotta let people know that because I tell people all the time, man. If you're trying to buy you a Land Rover and you got a landlord, something is wrong. Buy <laughs> <laughs> the house. Get the house. We got to get the car. We got, we we get you a scooter and get you a, an app for your phone, but we gotta get you a house. We got we gotta. It, it, <laughs> Another thing for me is, um, you know, having lived in D.C., I noticed that a lot of black folks moved out of the city uh, mm -hmm. and they moved to the suburbs. And uh, it was right when the city started to become highly livable. Uh, and if folks have stayed in there, um, they would have reaped even bigger rewards from staying in. If they, you know, if they if they could afford to stay, of course. Um, you know, so home ownership in an area that has good quality transit is a good investment. Uh, that, that's just going to accrue in value because, like we said earlier, uh, there's not enough transit. So that's a market failure, which means there'll be higher prices from that. Mm. Well, no, I just have th I have three. Well, these are three big questions, but I have three big questions. And I want to thank you so much for your time. The first one goes into what you've already done. If you if you have the floor, and if they didn't hear you when you talk to the transit team, and we know now that they're they're putting folks in pl place to run uh, uh, the uh, different offices and different different areas of the administration, what would be your thing that you would want? Let the folks know. This is your time to say what would what would you want them to know? What what do they need to do? to get us on the right path, particularly knowing how competition justice and mobility justice is so rooted in, in racism, so rooted in privilege, so rooted in just doing things wrong for so long. What can they do, particularly in their, in their time, to fix that? I think part of it is going to be engaging with community and empowering community to actually force folks to think twice before they make their own investments. Uh, and there's a lot that the federal government could do to do that. Um, you know, one thing that uh, Lyndon Johnson did, uh, there was investments in local community organizations to empower them. That didn't last very long. <laughs> it was part of the Great Society. And of course, Vietnam, we know what happened with the Great Society. Uh, but uh, you know, empower residents to have their own voice to fight for themselves locally. Make sure that uh, processes to pick projects actually have to encompass that, that voice, include that voice, uh, because a lot of times people don't think about so-called EJ communities, right? Uh, it's sort of like, oh, we're going to have our community engagement with those folks. We'll talk to them. It's not about talking to them. It's about actually tell, asking them, what do you need? What do you want? How can we serve you? That's what government is supposed to do. It's not supposed to be like you're doing community engagement, like you've done something. Uh, it's, you know, you ask the folks who are most in need what they actually want and need. 
uh, and uh, you'll empower people. The other is uh, we know that Mitch McConnell will be an issue uh, to get really robust things done. Uh, but uh, I'm hoping that the new administration can really push the outer edges of their regulatory uh, ability to do things without Congress and at every opportunity possible with discretionary programs. Discretionary programs are programs that the administration would have more say over how the spending is done without having to consult co Congress. Make sure that a higher percentage of those funds goes to transit over highways. And a good example would be, uh, there's a program that Obama created called the Tiger Program, uh, that during his administration, I believe it was 70% of the funding went to transit from that program, mm -hmm. uh, which is important because 80% of federal funds go to highways and only 20% goes to, to transit. So to have one program that is 70-30 in the other direction was a big deal. Trump came through, uh, renamed the program, and I think upwards of 90% goes to highway and freight now. Mm. Um, so... That shows you the power of these discretionary programs where a new administration can come in and say, okay, we're going to do this and we have the authority to do it, so we're going to move. Uh, find out all those programs and do the exact opposite of what Trump did for all of them. Hmm. No, that's great. And I guess so in a, in a little piggyback, because this is still part of question one. <laughs> As a piggyback to that, and so in the first 100 days, what would you want to see done specifically? Would it be executive orders or uh, legislation? I think executive orders make the most sense in the first 100 days um, uh, because, you know, unless we win the seats in Georgia, which hopefully we will, you know, um, uh, it's going to be tight uh, with McConnell as uh, leader of the Senate. So uh, executive order is really pushing that regulatory authority, as I mentioned, would be great. Uh, the other is really making a strong effort to do uh, additional COVID relief uh, because transit agencies, and this is one thing I should have mentioned earlier, uh, transit agencies are on the edge right now financially. Uh, a lot of their funding sources have dried up. They're literally on the cliff. Uh, in San Francisco, I believe that they might cut uh, half of their transit routes. Uh, other communities are, are talking about cutting weekend service altogether. So if you don't have a car, you'd be trapped at home on the weekends. Uh, and this is happening in real time and it's not getting enough publicity. So uh, this is a result of our current COVID crisis and the economic recession or depression associated with it and requires an activist federal government that opens up the checkbook and starts to write checks uh, no more sitting on the sidelines, no more like waiting to see what's going to happen, uh, force the Republicans to get something through. Mm, no, thank you for that. Actually, that was a, a very important point. Um, speaking of checkbooks, my next question is to our funders in our sector. Um, the, the first part I, I, I want to say for you, um, in the words of our, of our folks in the, in the movement, fund us like you want us to win. <laughs> That's the first first step. So in regards to transform, what what would be something that you would want the the funding the philanthropy sector to do? And there's been a lot of talk on their side, particularly around 
EV and electric vehicles. Um, they've been debating about obviously electric vehicles and autom automated vehicles and and the whole process to that, but and other aspects of transportation justice. But what would you if you if you had them now? So you move, you picked up and you 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 move from the transition task force. Now you're sitting in front of all of our our folks in the funding world um, for civil society. What would you want them to know and to do? in regards to transportation justice and mobility justice? There's been a lot of talk uh, from funders about the idea of building power, power building in communities. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that's a positive change. They need to continue that work. Uh, I think look for organizations that are able to be pragmatic in this environment. Um, folks who have experience at different levels of government and knows how to actually move uh, power is what I would say. Um, I'm someone who uh, has spent my career trying to trying to analyze and understand power uh, so that it can be properly fought against and also executed. Uh, and I think uh, finding leaders who have that mentality will allow us to have more victories. Uh, I understand that like some investments in the past may not have worked uh, in some places, some other organizations, but I think the time is now to actually make the investments to fight against the power that we are currently seeing, which is uh, anti-democratic, uh, anti-people of color, and anti-urban. Uh, you know, and uh, I think those are the fundamental impulses of our politics today. And even though Biden has won, uh, if you look down ballot to see what happened to the congressional races and what happened to some of our propositions here in California, the failure of our attempt to bring affirmative action back, it failed at the ballot. Uh, you know, uh, we're still up against it right now. We need support. No, definitely. Well, that's my last question. Thank you, man. You, this was an amazing conversation. The last group got to speak to, I'm, I'm just got you with me here going to all these different groups. We went to the transition team. We've gone to all the funders. Now I come home to my crew, the climate movement. Um, the climate movement's approach, as you know, transportation and mobility justice is often solely focused on lowering emissions. We saw with that with the car standards and the car rules. Um, do you feel connected to the climate movement? And how can the climate movement connect more with and embrace transportation and mobility justice? My, my fear with the um, attempts to decarbonize and those folks who prim primarily focus on that in the mobility sector, uh, in transportation, that might mean a bunch of cars that are, yes, zero emission, but we still have our freeways, we still have our inequity, uh, that exist in the mobility network. They're just cleaner vehicles. Uh, I don't think that's the outcome that people want. We want something more transformational. Uh, and transit and the mobility ecosystem that supports it, uh, such as biking and walking, uh, is the transformational revolutionary attempt that we need to make to actually make it for our environment be cleaner. Um, is not simply making uh, personal vehicles cleaner, which I think a lot of people have been focused on, which is kind of cool. I mean, like, if I were to ever buy a car, it would probably be an electric, it, it would be an electric vehicle. I call traditional cars, I call them dinosaur juice cars. 
because it sort of emphasizes that that's an old technology. We're using old dinosaurs for that. Come on, this is the 21st century, should be electric. Uh, but that's not going to be the answer alone. We need to have a more revolutionary approach to changing uh, a society that is inequitable. No, I appreciate that. And uh, if, if you, I hope, I guess, uh, if you get your, now, do you have an EV now? Do you have an EV car now? I'm carless now. Um, I live around the block from a train station and, uh, you know, I haven't had the need for a car. There it is. Well, I'm with you. I'm, listen, I, I do, and, I, and I'm with you on the, e, the, the EV. I'm actually uh, shopping for <laughs> an, an EV. Uh, we, we both got to tune in later. I, I might have to go through like a look. There's some really dope electric vehicles. I mean, there's some, you know, this is hip hop, so it gotta be, it gotta be, it gotta be, it gotta be straight. So we, I'm telling you, the EV sector is coming correct with the EV vehicles. Oh, I've, I've seen some that are quite beautiful and quite tempting. Uh, yeah. I gotta tell you, um, and uh, it uh, is truly great to see that some of the, frankly, some of the sexiest cars out there are electric. I mean, they just are. No, uh, by far. By far. Yeah. I mean, I, I won't mention brands, but I see some of them, I'm just sort of like, wow, that's nice. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, no, you gotta, you gonna mention, we gonna mention brands, I need to you know, <laughs> fund the movement. You know, you gotta, you gotta, exactly, exactly, right. Oh man, my brother, thank you so much uh, for taking some time for being on the, on the coolest show. Hey, thank you for the invite. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, thank you for all that you're doing. Uh, it's much appreciated. Nah, that is uh, Darnell Grisby, the executive director of Transform. And I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. And that concludes our four-part series on tricking electrification and transportation justice. If you haven't yet, listen to all four. If you have listened, thank you. And I know you, like me, are ready to get into some good trouble for transportation justice, mobility justice, electrifying trucks, and so much more. Follow us on social media for more information on actions to take at Think100Climate on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And stay tuned. We're coming back for Season 3 of The Coolest Show very soon. We'll be our biggest and best yet. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a nonprofit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. Think 100, think 100.